Hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Smith, host of the Connection Place podcast, where we connect our heart's passion for God with our mind's understanding of Scripture, where we come together in the place where Christ longs to connect with us, His Word. Okay, so it's been a few weeks since our last episode, so welcome back. Thanks for joining as we pick right back up where we left off. In seeking the Lord for the direction He wanted to go with this podcast after the Advent series, I really felt stirred that we should just use our time together in 2024 to keep going in Luke, to spend a whole year in this one book, this one gospel account of Jesus. There are a lot of thematic devotional options out there, and also many, many Bible reading plans of varying lengths and time commitments. Those are all great things to engage with as a student of the Word, but I felt led to go in a different direction here. I love the idea of diving deep into a section of the Bible without focusing on specific themes and without also requiring an extensive time commitment. For me, taking a look at the Gospel of Luke means studying the life of Jesus and what it, he, really meant during that time in history and what he means for us today. I think the subject of Jesus is completely worthy to devote our whole year to. And yet, my intention is to keep it simple from a commitment perspective, because digging deep with Jesus doesn't have to be hours of time in the Word every day, although it certainly can be if you wish it. So this year on the podcast, I'm introducing what I'm calling the Luke 5020 plan. We'll spend 50 weeks reading the book of Luke this year, hitting about 20-ish verses in each week's episode. My goal is to keep each episode to roughly 30 minutes, give or take. For the remainder of the year, we're going to walk through the rest of Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry. We're going to learn about the genealogy of Jesus, how Jesus kicks off his public ministry, and I'll give you a hint that it's not very glamorous, but it is very telling of who Jesus is and what he'll be all about. We're going to see Jesus do a lot of miraculous and amazing things, and we're going to see him questioned, rejected, and treated like a threat. We're going to see Jesus in community, and we're going to see Jesus set apart. We're going to hear Jesus teach us all about a new kind of kingdom, one that we've never seen the likes of before, and he's going to teach us in ways we've never been taught before through the use of parables. Jesus is going to task his followers and us with some things that are radical and counterintuitive. He's going to tell us that there's a cost associated with his way of doing things, but that cost leads to abundant life. And we're going to learn that there is also a cost of choosing to do life without Jesus, and it is a much, much greater cost. We're going to see Jesus suffer and die at the hands of those who misunderstood him and cast him out. We're going to discover that death is not the end for Jesus and neither is it the end for those who love him and call on his name. We're going to get a view into how his followers felt when their beloved Jesus died, and what they experienced when they laid their eyes on their resurrected, triumphant king and friend. So come on, take 30 minutes a week with me to gather around the word of Christ and learn about the life of Christ through the eyes and account of Luke. Let's start with a quick recap of what we covered in December. We learned that Luke is a doctor, a missionary companion of Paul, 
and a follower of Jesus. He also wrote the book of Acts, which is considered a direct follow-on to the book of Luke. Luke provides us with the longest of the four Gospels, giving us the fullest portrait of Jesus' ministry. He points out in the preface that many other accounts exist using eyewitness reports, but after his own careful investigation, he decided to add his own account. In writing this account, Luke is specifically writing to Theophilus, who happens to be a Gentile, so that he can be certain of the truth of everything he was taught. In the first two chapters, Luke covers in detail the prophetic announcements of the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. These announcements happen through multiple angelic visitations, they describe two miraculous conceptions, and they involve a wide variety of witnesses. Then Luke tells us about, and compares and contrasts, the actual births of John the Baptist and Jesus. Luke also gives us an accounting of the prophetic and evangelistic responses to those births. One thing we didn't really cover in December, and we don't have time to cover now in depth, are the last 12 or so verses of Luke chapter 2, where Luke gives us a very brief accounting of Jesus' childhood. In these verses, we are told a story of how Jesus, as a 12-year-old, gives his parents, Mary and Joseph, the slip. His parents had assumed Jesus was with the traveling party following the Passover festival, but he wasn't. He ended up staying behind in Jerusalem, asking questions of the religious teachers in the temple. When Mary and Joseph found him, they admonished Jesus for causing them such a fright, which, as a parent, I think is understandable. But he responded with a kind of frustrating question right back to them. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Naturally, Mary and Joseph did not understand what Jesus was saying to them. And I'm not sure I would have either given the circumstances. But in the end, Jesus wasn't trying to be flippant or disobedient. He was simply being honest and mindful of his true purpose even at a young age. It's a good reminder for me as a parent to not be dismissive of my kids just because they are young. And indeed, the Bible encourages us in this way in other passages as well, notably in Jeremiah 1. What I might perceive to be irksome or frustrating or even deliberately disobedient may actually just be my kids seeking to grow into who God made them to be which is why we always need discernment and heavenly help in raising our kids. Anyway, Luke chapter 2 ends on this note. Then Jesus went down with Mary and Joseph and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. This is all we get about Jesus' childhood in Luke's account but it's enough to paint the picture we need. Jesus honored his earthly parents, and he grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and with people. So now, without further ado, let's dig into the rest of this week's episode, which will focus on the first 22 verses of Luke chapter 3, where at a very zoomed-out level, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, and Jesus himself being baptized. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, 
and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, let's just pause right here, because, first of all, talk about a mouthful. But also, let's remember, Luke is setting out to provide us with an historically accurate, thoroughly investigated account into the life of Jesus. So really, while we might want to gloss over these first two verses with all these names that we don't think we need to know, we need to at least acknowledge how important it is that Luke is setting the scene. He wants us to understand that there was a specific place and time where these events happened, that they really did occur in history, and here are the grounding facts and names to help prove it. It is so important that when we read scripture, we avoid this notion of centralizing it around us and our modern times and way of living, because the Bible, this library of books with many different authors, was all compiled very intentionally in time and space by the God who exists outside of time and space. God didn't have to do it that way, and sometimes it's confounding why he did it that way, but nonetheless, we should be mindful of the historicity of scripture because it very much impacts how we should read it. Also, the text tells us that God's word came to John. What does this mean? It means that, just as is possible today, the Holy Spirit came to John and gave him prophetic revelation. In this case, we know that John's main purpose is to lead the way for Jesus, and we're going to see him do just that with this word from God. Also, it's noteworthy to talk about where John was when this word came to him. This word came to him while he was in the wilderness. We'll see this as a recurring theme in scripture, as John isn't the only one spending time in the wilderness. We've talked about this before in earlier episodes, so I won't belabor the point, but God can do some pretty amazing and eternally minded things in the wildernesses of our lives. All right, let's keep going. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord! Make his path straight! Every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. All right, so zoom out. What's happening in this portion of the text? Luke is telling us how the word of God came to John, and John felt compelled to go into the vicinity of the Jordan River to share this word, which happens to be all about the importance of repentance and its connection with forgiveness of sins. Luke also mentions that this other prophet Isaiah actually prophesied what John is doing right now. So what we have here is not only that John received a word from God to share with the people, but John is also fulfilling a prophetic word that came to Isaiah well before John's time. Isaiah, in these words, when he says, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, is talking about John. So God was already preparing his people for this word from long ago, because the words of Isaiah at this point will be very well known to the people of Israel. And that means they will be looking for the one who fulfills this word. 
What's interesting is John is here now fulfilling this word, but the way he is fulfilling it is a bit controversial and unexpected. John, as we'll see, is not one to mince words, and he has some troubling and difficult things to tell them and us because he's essentially calling God's people out and telling them it's time for them to repent through baptism in order to be forgiven for their sins. This is crucial because to this point, God's people have the law, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus, which spell out all the rules for animal sacrifices for the atonement of sins. But here, John is saying something else. And what he's preaching, this repentance through baptism, is what is fulfilling Isaiah's words, that a voice in the wilderness will call for the way to be made for the Lord, that every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth. Essentially, that everything that's all messed up and broken and out of alignment is going to come into alignment as we make way for the Lord. through our repentance. And as a result, everyone will see the salvation of God. And we know what, or rather who, that salvation of God is. Jesus. John is preparing the way for Jesus by preaching repentance. And those who heed this word shall see the salvation of the Lord, who is Jesus, and will recognize Jesus as such. But there are those who don't understand John's words or purpose. So let's keep going and see what John says. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Phew! What we see here is John calling people out for being outwardly pious, but inwardly wretched. He is not going to be okay with people lining up to be baptized in the water of the Jordan River by his hands and yet leaving with unrepentant, dirty hearts. He is here to prepare the way for Jesus, and he is going to make sure the people understand that a little water poured on their heads isn't enough. It needs to be a true repentance from the heart, and true repentance bears fruit. Fruit is proof. Fruit can be tasted and seen by others. It's not something that is guessed at. You can hold it, you can touch it, you can witness it, You can verify that it is not rotten, but rather that it is good and sweet. And John doesn't stop there. He takes it even further by saying that being descendants of Abraham will not cut it either. This is a very controversial statement during those times, where lineage was everything, and having Abraham in your direct lineage was enough to say that you were a child of God. It was essentially this attitude of, I'm a child of God by birthright and nothing can take that from me, even if I don't take God's words and commands to heart. And John says, no, that's not the way. He says that God can raise up true children from stones. Stones! 
Can you imagine how insulting that was? John isn't messing around and he wants people to get it. Repentance is the way. True repentance bears fruit. And if that fruit isn't produced, these people will not be included in God's family. They will be trees cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire in the way God's people understood it then could mean a few different things. It could mean the protective presence of God, as we see through the smoking fire pot in the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis, as well as the fire of God that led the Israelites through the wilderness by night in Deuteronomy, and even God promising to be a protective wall of fire around his people in Zechariah. It could mean the purification of God, as we see mention of the refiner's fire for gold in multiple sections of the Old Testament. And it can mean destruction and judgment, which ultimately means the eternal absence of God's protective fire and presence in our lives. We can even quench the Holy Spirit, meaning we can extinguish his guiding fire in our lives, and in so doing, offend God and sever our relationship with him. One way that we would do this is by refusing to acknowledge our sinful nature and our deep, desperate need for God to make all things right. And that is what John is talking about here. That if we refuse to repent, really repent, then we will be like trees that don't bear fruit and instead are destroyed. Naturally, the people flocking to John to be baptized by him have questions about these very concerning statements. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, What should we do? He said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, He proclaimed good news to the people. All right, so here we see the people asking John, well, what do we do about this problem? We don't want to be the trees thrown into the fire. And John gives them pretty straightforward and seemingly works-based responses at first. He tells them to share what they have with those who have none. He tells tax collectors to be fair in their dealings and not greedy. He tells soldiers not to take money from people by force or lying and to be satisfied with their wages. There's a lot here in these few responses that deal with money and power. John is basically telling people who have power, any power, and especially financial power, to not wield their power in ways that oppress people, but in ways that help people. He tells them to be generous and fair and to be satisfied. Already, we're getting a glimpse of the kingdom way of doing things. But at first, he's not even mentioning Jesus. He's mentioning actions. Again, actions lead to fruit, 
and actions come out of the overflow of what's in our hearts, which should be repentance. Then John does talk about Jesus because people are starting to think that John himself is the Messiah, and John does not want that mistake to be made. He tells them that the Messiah is coming, though he doesn't mention Jesus by name at this point. And it's not him. He, John, isn't even worthy to untie the true Messiah's sandals. The baptism the Messiah provides will be one of the Holy Spirit and of fire. And here again, we see this picture of fire, but this time, this is a fire we should welcome into our lives because it's the Holy Spirit's protective fire. And again, John warns that the Messiah will be ready to make some tough choices, that he will gather the wheat, the good part, the part that can be tasted as good and that edifies us, into his barn, and the chaff, the bad part, the part that can't be eaten and is basically waste, will burn with the fire that never goes out. But John doesn't end with that. The text tells us that he proclaims the good news to the people along with many other exhortations. Exhortations means encouragements. This is important. It's important that we understand that Jesus is the good news. But there can't be good news without bad news. The bad news is that we don't have to choose Jesus and that there is a consequence to making that choice, a pretty severe consequence, as John is clearly making known. But repentance is ultimately good news because it leads us to Jesus, to the one who can forgive our sins and ensure that the protective, refining, purifying fire of God never goes out in our lives, and that it leads us straight to him for all eternity. So John continues to spread the good news of repentance and the coming of the Messiah, but he also continues to warn and rebuke, and as we're about to see, that gets him into trouble. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else, and he locked John up in prison. John gets locked up into prison, eventually. It's a little confusing on the timeline here because, if we're not careful, we'll read this straight through as though it happened all at the same time or even on the same day, but it didn't. John's ministry timeline is more spread out than that, and eventually, that ministry and work of John causes him to become a threat in the eyes of those with power. Remember how Luke started this chapter with mentioning all those names in power? That was to establish the history of the time, yes, but also, These are some of the same people that John gets in trouble with. Because you see, John calls out Herod for taking up relations with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. John calls this a sinful, and because John directly rebukes someone in power, he gets thrown into prison for this. We'll come to see later what happens with John, but suffice it to say, one thing is for certain. Following the way of Jesus has a cost. There are many times where the cost and the stakes won't be as high as what John deals with in our own modern day lives. But there are certainly levels of persecution happening to the Church of Christ all throughout the world. And John, in this story, even as he is doing God's will, maybe even especially because he is doing God's will, experiences direct persecution as a result. But remember, Nothing is wasted with God, and God will not waste this either. 
There are two more verses in this chapter to cover for today's episode, but these are some of my very favorite. The Baptism of Jesus When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So here we see that Jesus himself is baptized. And not only that, but he is baptized by John the Baptist, which we know from the Gospel account of Mark, chapter 1, verse 9. Scripture also tells us in Matthew chapter 3 that even though John fully acknowledged that he was unworthy to baptize Jesus, Jesus told him to allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. In allowing himself to be baptized, Jesus accomplishes a few things. First, he accomplishes his Father's will and demonstrates that even he is not above being baptized. Second, Even though he is sinless, he places himself on the level of being among sinners, of needing baptism. He will do this again in a full circle way by dying on the cross. Third, his baptism is not for the repentance of his sins, of course, but rather it is focused on his death and dying in order to be fully alive and resurrected, and paving the way for us to do the same. Scripture tells us in other parts of the New Testament, in Paul's letters, for example, that if we experience the same baptism of suffering alongside of Jesus in this life, that we will also experience his baptism into new life. If we die to ourselves, we'll rise again to new life in Christ. If we repent and believe, we will die to these earthly bodies one day, but we will rise again in new heavenly bodies, and we will never be apart from God again. So Jesus' baptism is extremely significant, and indeed, John is the one who continues to pave the way for the Lord, the coming Messiah, by being the one to perform it. Also in Jesus' baptism, we see all three parts of the Trinity at work. We, of course, have God the Son, Jesus, in human form as an adult, who is on the cusp of stepping into his time of ministry on earth as the Messiah and Savior of the world. We have God the Spirit descending on Jesus in the physical form of a dove. Why a dove? Doves were considered ceremonially clean and usable for sacrifice, particularly by those who were too poor to afford a larger sacrificial animal. The dove is an emblem of purity and a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God descended on the perfect sacrifice, the one who would be for all people, regardless of wealth and status, who would be pure. And then we have God the Father, as the voice from heaven, expressing his pleasure in Jesus before Jesus even accomplishes one miracle or does one thing on mission. It's this part, as a daughter of God, that I love most of all. This part that echoes back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were first created, and God blesses them before he sends them off to be fruitful and multiply and rule the earth in Genesis. This part tells me that God is well pleased with me simply by virtue of my being his. There is nothing I can do that would cause him to love me more or less. For sure, he cheers me on as I do the work of my hands, the work he's placed on my heart. 
But at the core, it is not this that pleases God. Just as it is not the works of my children that please my mother's heart, but it is them, just them, their presence and love in my life. And that is true of God for us as well. All right, so we made it through the first 22 verses of Luke chapter 3. I really think we're going to have some fun this year deep diving into Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And I can't wait to connect with you together in this place where Jesus longs to connect with us, his word. See you next time.